in my view, there is no excuse for doing open surgery anymore. For some operations, I think it's almost below standard of care to do open surgery. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake Peekles. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Okay, so welcome to this episode of the Neurosurgery Podcast. This is John Paul Colson. I'm here Joined, as always, by Dr. Mike Wang, and today we are honored to have Dr. Rick Fessler, um, who I have the privilege to train under at Rush University. Today's topic is why you should learn MIS. The answer to that is easy for me, uh, but Dr. Fessler, welcome. Uh, for our listeners, why don't you tell us a bit of your background? Sure. Um, I have a very unusual background for neurosurgery, I suppose. Um, I started out with a bachelor's and a master's degree in psychology and uh, then did research for a number of years before I went back and did my PhD in pharmacology and physiology and only after that did I decide to go to medical school and then during medical school decided to become a neurosurgeon. Although I didn't even match in neurosurgery, I matched in neurology and then changed my mind. Well, I was a psychology major myself so there's hope for me yet. (laughs) So, you know, going through all that and then you you make your way into neurosurgery, where did you take it from there? So after residency, I took my first job at the University of Florida with L. Roten. And, of course, all of my training with Sean Mullen was in cerebrovascular surgery. So I was planning on being a famous vascular neurosurgeon, just like Sean Mullen and all the other greats in that field. But when I got to Florida, Al Roten pulled me aside and said, Rick, I really want to offer you a job, but I don't need a vascular surgeon. I've got Art Day. I need a spine surgeon. I knew nothing about spine. I had maybe done a discectomy in my residency, but that's about it. (laughs) But I was looking out the window of his office at the palm trees, and it was 70 degrees in in Gainesville, and it was 20 below zero in Chicago. (laughs) And I said... I can do that. <laughs> and that's how I became a spine surgeon. Well, there are, there are worse ways to get there. Have um, you regretted it at all? Not at all. It's been fabulous. It's been, a, it's been a great career. So, obviously, you are a giant and minimally invasive surgery of the spine. Um, sitting here with you and Dr. Wang, it's hard to imagine why we should even ask the question, for those of us in this room, why learn MIS? But for our listeners, um, attendings, residents such as myself, medical students, and uh, ancillary professionals in the field, what would you say to them? Why learn MIS in 2019? Well, so we are now about 25 years into MIS techniques. We started out doing very simple things like discectomies, and then they expanded to doing decompression of stenosis, and then tumors and then vertebrectomies, and then intradural tumors, ultimately going up to major fusions and scoliosis. And we're at the point now where we can do almost any operation using minimally invasive technique. 
and the data are just so clear for the benefits of the patient where they have shorter hospital stays, less blood loss, less pain, less requirement of pain medicines, much faster rehab, often don't have to go to rehab, even for major operations like scoliosis now. And we've essentially eliminated infection as a complication. In my view, there is no excuse for doing open surgery anymore. It's just like, you know, at one point, at one point cars were invented. And one of the comments was that cars are an interesting toy, but the horse is here to stay. We're sort of at that point. I mean, it's almost, for some operations, I think, it's almost below standard of care to do open surgery. Wow, that's a huge statement. I know coming from someone like you that, that carries a lot of weight, but you know, a lot of people are scared to learn it. You know, they're, they're like, this is, this is hard. And let's be, let's be honest, you don't get paid anymore to do MIS than open, right? You, of course, they probably get paid less. Probably get paid less. Yeah, so you get more radiation, more stress in your body, you got to learn it. What do you, give me a message for someone who's 50, someone who's 40, and someone who's 30 in, in chronological years as a neurosurgeon who's not doing MIS but does a lot of spine, like, pitch it. Like, you're 50 years old, why should you learn MIS? I mean, he's already 50. Well, let me start at 60. If you're 60 years old, don't bother. Okay. <laughs> if you're 50 years old, you've still got 15 years left, at least, of your career. That's like 2,000 cases, 3,000 cases. Exactly. Yeah. And remember, the, you know, we're, we're first taught do no harm. Mm-hmm. Open surgery, you do harm. Minimally invasively, you do much less harm. Mm-hmm. So you have to do what's best for your patient. So as a 50-year-old with 15 years left, yeah, you probably should learn MIS, at least for the simpler operations. Mm-hmm. If you're 40 or you're 30 and you don't learn MIS, in 10 years, you're not going to be doing spine surgery. they got to do a fellowship with you. <laughs> so so that, that's a pretty compelling argument. I think you're making a really good point here. Um, when you're teaching folks, I mean, you are a training program, JP is with you. It, is it harder for you to teach people to do MIS in open surgery? It is somewhat, and this is one of the things we often debate. In order to do minimally invasive spine surgery, you really have to understand three-dimensional anatomy in your brain without seeing it in front of you. Mm -hmm. Because you only see what's at the bottom of your little tube, and you need to know before you get in trouble what's a millimeter away that you can't see. Mm -hmm. And you don't have the entire spine there in front of you to help you figure that out. So you have to know anatomy. One of the arguments is, how can we learn anatomy if we're not doing open surgery? Well, the answer to that is you spend a lot of time in the laboratory doing, doing operations on cadavers. Or you do operations in virtual reality, which is now becoming a, a bigger deal and becoming very realistic. So you've got to know that. And then you've got to know the techniques specific to operating through a tube or a small retractor or whatever you prefer. And there's some tricks to that. For example, you can't triangulate your instruments like you do in open surgery because there's no room to do that. Mm -hmm. You have to have some kind of a visualization system so that your instruments are not blocking your view of your working position down at the bottom of your channel. Um, So those are all just new things you have to learn. But as a surgeon who is working with your hands every day, there's no reason every surgeon can't learn these techniques. So... One of the questions I'm very interested in, in hearing your answer for um, dates for me back a couple of years when I was in medical school. I, I was very interested in neurosurgery. I started getting interested in spine and I became obsessed. I became a fanboy. 
and I went through YouTube and I found every video I could find about neurosurgery and spine surgery. And I found a Minute with the Masters video from, I think, 10, 15 years back talking about the laser spine surgery phenomenon. And it had giants in the field who would go up and each talk for 30 seconds for a minute, little clips about what does minimally invasive surgery mean. And I think today, reading the literature, talking to experts, the definition has begun to coalesce. But from your perspective, Dr. Fessler, when you tell someone, I do minimally invasive surgery, what do those words mean when you tell a patient that? To me, they mean, and the information I try and transmit to the patient, is that minimally invasive surgery means less trauma to the soft tissues. It mm. doesn't have anything to do with the incision. It uh, doesn't have anything to do with anesthesia. What it has to do with is not cutting uh, lots of muscle, dilating through it instead. What's the difference? When you cut muscle and you take it off the lamina and spinous process and facets, you devascularize it and you denervate it. That muscle's dead. Why do our surgeries fail or why did they fail in the past? Because we killed all the muscles. And then you're absolutely depending, for example, upon the instrumentation that you put in rather than the muscles in your spine to be doing what they're supposed to be doing in terms of holding you up and helping you move. That's why those surgeries failed. We don't have the failures that we used to have now that we do minimally invasive spine surgery. It's because we're leaving the patient's anatomy essentially normal at the end of an operation. Wow. Can you think back across the course of your career and think about some of the response you've had from patients before some of these techniques were developed or available? Um, during the transition period and then now that they've been established, well-evidenced for a long time and have become, as you say, increasingly standard of care. How do patients respond when you offer them the surgery? And perhaps more interestingly, how, how do they uh, relate their outcomes afterwards? Well, now most of my patients come to me because I do minimally invasive spine surgery. They expect it. Right. Um, the responses I get from them, uh, of course, vary patient to patient. But um, I have a lot more hugs in my clinic than I did years ago. <laughs> uh, I, get, I get notes from people every week saying that, you know, I changed their life. Uh, it's, it's made spine surgery a really gratifying field of neurosurgery. Now, when I started out, it was interesting because what we would do is we'd develop an operation and then practice it for a while and then we develop another operation and practice it. And there, of course, there's always got to be your first patient yeah. that you do it. Early on in my career when I was developing these operations, more often than not, the first patient was a physician. Mm. And when I told them that I had never done this, one, one particular patient was a cardiac surgeon, for example, and he had a large primary tumor of L5. And uh, he was losing his practice because he was in so much pain he couldn't stand. So he came to me and he said, I understand you do minimally invasive surgery. I want you to do this L5 vertebrectomy uh, minimally invasively. And at that point, I had never done that. And I said, I have never done this before. And he said, that's okay. I think you can do it. <laughs> and of course, we did it. And he went back to his practice. Wow. Uh, wow. But that was very often the case. My first patients were almost always physicians. So nowadays, we've, we've come to this point where it's like everybody says they do minimally invasive surgery, right? And it's just a term, right? It's, it's, like, a, it's like a category of surgery. 
obviously not everybody's doing minimally invasive surgery, right? So what, maybe 15, 20% of spine surgery is technically... I don't know the numbers, but that's probably a fair estimate. And then 95% say they do it. So, you're right, exactly. So patients always say, oh yeah, they're going to do this minimally invasive surgery. I'm like, no, no, that doesn't sound very minimal to me. But how do you define, I know, I know you gave the definition of tissues, like soft tissue sparing, but how do you like categorize if you say, okay, check a box, MIS or not, how do you kind of look at it? To me, it's, it's uh, completely dependent upon what you do to the muscular tissue. Um, if you're cutting the muscle um, off the spinous process and lamina, uh, it's not minimally invasively. If you are dilating through it so that you don't have to remove the muscle except a little bit at the bottom of your working channel, that's what I consider minimally invasive. So, for example, when I'm doing uh, scoliosis, um, for the... the uh, anterior portion at L5-S1 and L4-5, I'll usually do an A-lift, and that I'm assisted by my general surgeon, and it's, it's a semi-minimally invasive because the, um, there's no muscle cut, but it's still a little bit bigger uh, operation than the rest of them. Laterally at 3, 4, 2, 3, and 1, 2, I typically do a lateral approach, and again, there's no muscle uh, cutting there. Every, everything is dilated through. And then posteriorly, when I'm doing facet fusions or instrumentation, it's all done by dilating through the muscle so that at the end of the operation, their muscular anatomy is almost essentially normal. That's what I consider minimally invasive mm -hmm. surgery. So even scoliosis can be done minimally invasively, completely minimally invasively. What do you see on the horizon for minimally invasive spine? What I think is going to happen is what's been happening slowly over the last 30 years and that is that neurosurgery at one point only did laminectomies and discectomies and all other spine surgery was done by orthopedic surgery. Mm -hmm. Over the years, neurosurgery has taken over doing more and more and more of spine surgery so that now neurosurgeons do 90% of the cervical surgery and they do about 60% of the lumbar surgery. Orthopedic surgeons do not have the length of training that neurosurgeons have in the spine or the training under the microscope that neurosurgeons have. I see them continuously losing the share of spine surgery and spine surgery ultimately becoming entirely neurosurgery. And as a few, in a few more generations, it'll be done almost entirely through minimally invasive technique. Wow. Well, Dr. Fessler, I, I feel bad that we, we brought you here with a topic to discuss when obviously, uh, with the history you've related, there's so many things we could talk about. Um, especially, you know, we should have you back for a talk about psychology and neurosurgery. That, <laughs> that would be fun. Um, but for the people such as myself just starting their careers um, outside of spine, outside of minimally invasive, what general advice would you give people getting into the field? Well, I think my advice for going into spine is the same as my advice for going into neurosurgery to any young person. Um, my advice would be, um, number one, when you're going into a new job, for example, don't go in thinking that you're the most important person in the world. You're going to have to pay your dues. You're probably going to get paid less than your senior partners. That's part of life. Don't whine about it. Uh, suck it up and do your job and do it well. Uh, secondly, uh, or third, I guess it would be in that case, um, recognize that we are, we are blessed to be able to do what we do and treat your patient as you would treat your own mother or father. 
in all cases. Uh, fourth, um, remember that as important as your career is, your family is more important, and don't ever lose your family, because your career is not worth it if you do. And finally, uh, you'll be a better surgeon if you are humble. Wow, that's great, great advice, Rick. Uh, thank you so much. We look forward to having you back to talk about maybe uh, your time in divinity school or, uh, or, or uh, what is it you're collecting again? Um, antiquities. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to talk to you about that more. So thank you for your time today. Thank you, Dr. Fessler. Thank you. Okay. Okay.